John 4, 7 through 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, Am he. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thanks, Paul. Let me uh, pray for us and ask for God's help as we look at this part of his word together this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, this morning we ask <clears throat> for you to be with us, and we ask that through this text you would reveal to us how you desire to be worshiped. And how through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, even now, you are equipping and empowering us to draw near to you. A God who is an unquenchable fire. A God whom no man or woman can approach without holiness. We come to you in and through Jesus Christ. Through the ministry of our great high priest for us. And we beseech you to be at work among us this morning. We ask God that you would give to us great grace and mercy that you would transform and change our lives, and that we would be a people who more and more love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my all-time favorite uh, television series is Friday Night Lights. That shows about uh, the people of a fictional town called Dillon, Texas, which is actually 
based on the real town of Odessa, Texas, which I have some history with, and I can tell you this is a very realistic story. And it's centered around the high school football team, the Dillon Panthers, and the head coach and his family in particular. And the true barometer of this show's greatness is that it's about high school football, and Marianne loves it as well. And watch the whole show with me. And I mentioned Friday Night Lights because you could say that that's a show that is very adept at revealing what people find most important. In the fictional town of Dillon, there are churches on every street corner, just like many small towns in Texas. And uh, if you were to ask someone from Dillon, what's your town like? What do you value? They would say, we're family friendly, we're conservative, we're patriotic, we're a salt of the earth kind of people and a salt of the earth kind of place. Or at least that's what they want you to think. They would say, these are our core values, but you know what the real core value of Dillon, Texas is? The Dillon Panthers. High school football. You know, the proof is in the pudding. On Friday night in the show, all of the stores close down, the high school stadium lights go on, and that place is packed to the brim. What they really value is football, and that's illustrated, I think, very in a very hilarious way in the series opener when the team loses their season opening game and the coach is driving home after the game ends and listening to a sports talk radio station. And a man calls in on the sports talk radio station after the team has lost. And as you might imagine, if you're a sports fan, he's upset and he's angry and he thinks, how could we pay this coach all this money? Which probably isn't that much money. You know, if you're an educator, you know that. And he loses the opening game of the season. And at one point, the caller says, I tell you what we need. We need to quit giving these kids so much learning in those schools. We need to quit giving them so much learning in those schools and get them out on the field. The core value is football. Every town has core values. Every organization has core values. Every church, whether they acknowledge it or not, has core values. The way I've said it from the very beginning of our church is that every church has a smell. Some churches have an aroma. Some churches have a stench. Some churches are somewhere in between. And the aroma or smell of a church doesn't primarily come from that church's theology. It doesn't primarily come from the aesthetics of the church. It comes from what the church values. Now we're approaching five years of ministry together at Christ Church. Our fifth birthday is coming up on Easter, and the vast majority of you were not present five years ago when we started just as a Bible study in my living room and talked about what our core values are going to be, what we believe God is calling us to, what our vision is. And so what we're going to do is take the next seven Sundays leading up to Easter to talk about the seven core values of our church. Now, why are we doing this? We're doing it in part to cast vision, to build unity around what we believe the Lord is calling us as a church to be and to do. We're doing it to re-engage and reignite uh, a collaborative focus around our values and around our vision. And we're also doing it to celebrate what the Holy Spirit has done among us for the past five years. These are the things, these core values that I want us and our leaders want us to smell like. So today, we're going to look at the value of joyful worship, one of our seven. And we're going to use this great story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well as a launch pad. 
And as we think about joyful worship, I want us to break our time into two sections. In this story, we see the premise of joyful worship, and we see the practice of joyful worship. So that's the outline for you. If you're a note taker, there you go. The premise of joyful worship, the practice of joyful worship. So first, the premise, the premise of joyful worship. You know, this is a great story. It's a great story for many reasons, but I want us to see this morning how this story shows us what worship is about. And when I say worship, I mean what we're doing right now. When the people of God collectively gather as the body of Jesus to praise the Lord. Jesus and the woman talk about worship a good bit. It's mentioned 10 times in verses 20 through 26. But before they begin explicit dialogue about worship, we see Jesus teach this woman the premise of worship, the premise of joyful worship. We see that when he asks the woman for a drink. Paul read that there in verse 7. He asks this woman for a drink and she's taken aback. And it's understandable why she's taken aback. She's taken aback because he speaks to her at all. In that kind of culture, a Jewish rabbi didn't speak to women by themselves. And moreover, this is a woman who has been ostracized. She's an outcast. This is a woman who's been hurt. She's a broken sinner and she knows it. Why would she be alone as a female at a well in the heat of the day? Most women in that culture would go either in the morning or in the evening, but she goes in the heat of the day because she doesn't want to be around others. And Jesus reveals that he knows her sinful and her wounded past. Verses 16 through 18, he says that she's had five husbands. This woman's been looking for love in all the wrong places. She sought fulfillment in various relationships, but she hasn't found it anywhere. Instead, she's found herself alone and afraid and abandoned. And so Jesus approaches her in a very interesting way. Look at what he says, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And again, verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, what is going on? Why is Jesus addressing this woman in this way? What's he getting at when he speaks about living water that will quench her thirst forever? Jesus is using the metaphor of a well and water to address her deepest needs and longings. And Jesus is telling us something here about what it means to be human. Humans are, by definition, people who thirst for something. People who long for something. Humans are, by definition, people who love. You know, the Bible does not portray humans primarily as thinkers. Descartes was wrong when he said, I think, therefore I am. Nor does the Bible primarily portray people as doers, those who at our base just act on instinct. Rather, the Bible portrays humans at our core as lovers. The Bible says that we as human beings are people who love things. Jamie Smith, the theologian, has written, to be human is to love, and it is what we love that defines who we are. 
So if you're a human, and I think all of you are humans last time I checked, it's not a matter of whether or not you love something or someone. It's who or what you love the most that defines who you are and defines what you do. You could also say it's not a question of whether or not you worship. Rather, the question is who or what you worship most. You see, we worship, we love, we go after what we believe will most fulfill us. We worship and love what we really are most thirsty for. You could say that worship is not a mat, uh, it's not a question of something it's not whether you do it or not. It's what, how you do it and who you do it towards. We worship, we love, and we think what we think will satisfy and fulfill us. And that gets us to the premise of worship. Here it is. You all this morning are already worshiping something or someone. But Christianity says, and the gospel says, and Jesus is saying to us and to this woman, only in him. Can you find the love, belonging, and satisfaction that you're really looking for? When we seek ultimate satisfaction or acceptance or love or belonging in anything or anyone other than God, we're going to come up empty. That's what had happened to this woman, and that's what happens to each of us when we seek to fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts with something other than God himself. All of our longings for love have their answer in the love of God. Evelyn Waugh was a a novelist who uh, wrote a book called Brideshead Revisited. And it's probably his best book. And this book is about a man named Charles Ryder, uh, an English man who, during college, becomes friends with another man named Sebastian Flight. And Sebastian is a fascinating and a mysterious character. And the rest of his family is equally fascinating and mysterious. And the Flight family lives at this amazing estate called Brideshead. And Charles, the protagonist of the story, during his college years is obsessed with being accepted by this family, with being near this family, with being loved by this family. He himself was an orphan, and he's longing to be a part of the mysterious fascinating culture of this family. And as the story plays out, you'll see that this obsession that Charles Ryder has is disordered. It's misdirected. And as the story progresses, it becomes more and more broken and even torturous. However, about halfway through the book, Charles Ryder has a conversion. He's converted to Christianity. And then he can look back. He can revisit, hence the name, Brides Have Revisited. He can look back on his experiences and interpret them through the lens of the gospel. And of his former desire to be accepted and loved by the Flight family, he says this, listen, perhaps all our loves are merely hints and symbols. A hill of many invisible crests Doors that open as in a dream to reveal only a further stretch of carpet and another door. Perhaps you and I are types and this sadness which sometimes falls between us springs from disappointment in our search. Each straining through and beyond the other, snatching a glimpse now and then of the shadow which turns the corner always a pace or two ahead of us. What's the point? The point is that the premise of worship 
is that all of our lesser loves, all of our lesser objects of worship are merely hints and symbols. They're merely hints and symbols of the love we should direct towards God in response to the love that God gives us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is worship? Worship is a reordering of our loves. Worship is a reordering of the priorities of worship in our life. Worship is our hearing and believing what God has given to us freely by his grace in and through Jesus. Forgiveness, righteousness, indeed, even himself. And in response, loving him first and foremost joyfully. Worship is seeing and savoring God above all else because God is the only one who's worthy of it. And because God is the only one who can quench what we really, in the deepest moments and deepest longings, are thirsty for. John Piper famously puts it best. He says that we exist to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The premise of worship is that all of us are already worshiping something. And that we're only going to experience a satisfaction to our longings a response to our innate desire to love when we see God, the one who gives himself to us by grace in Jesus as the one worthy of our heart's greatest desires. So if that's true, and it is, what's the practice of joyful worship? Given that worship is about glorifying God by enjoying him, that worship is about going to the living water that Jesus freely gives us in his grace and drinking deeply, that it's about reordering our loves again towards God in faith. What does that look like? What should the practice of joyful worship be? Well, Jesus helps us here in this story to understand that as well. He tells us later in the text that worship, true worship, is in spirit and in truth. The practice of worship is worship that's in spirit and in truth. Let me talk about both of those with you briefly. First, we worship in truth. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So what does Jesus mean when he says that true worshipers worship in truth? To worship in truth means to worship in accord with what is true of God and what is true of us. Look at verse 22. He says that the Jews worship what they know, whereas the Samaritans worship what they do not know. So that implies that there is such a thing as false worship. And this makes sense when you think about it. If worship is primarily about reordering our loves and enjoying God and the satisfaction he brings us in Jesus, if that's what worship is, then we must know about him rightly. Now, I said just a second ago that humans aren't primarily thinkers. They're primarily lovers, and I think that's true. But our thinking informs and drives our loving. Think about your marriages, for example. I can't love Marianne well if I don't know her, and if I'm not continuing to know and learn more about her all the time. And it's the same in our relationship with God, to love God well, to worship God well, 
To enjoy Jesus' grace for us, we must understand him and understand him rightly. We must worship in truth. You see? Now, what does that mean practically? How does that inform our practice of worship? Well, here, the main way we worship in truth is by self-consciously tethering our worship order, the things we do here when we're together, to the Scripture. We have a strong conviction at Christ Church in the authority of the Bible. The Bible is the final rule of faith and practice for all of us. It's God's inspired word. It's given to us for our growth in godliness and grace. So we worship in truth when our worship is governed by or regulated by the Bible. Now, what does that mean practically? First, it means that the sermon, what we're doing now, is based on the Bible. And the teaching element of our church occupies, so to speak, center stage in our gatherings. Worshiping in truth means that our teaching aims for the heart by explaining texts, explaining the stories with clarity and conviction. We believe that the Holy Spirit uses the scripture as it's taught and as it's proclaimed to grow each of us up in grace. So worshiping in truth means we are tethered to the text. Secondly, worshiping in truth means we adhere to what's called the regulative principle. Some of you know that. Some of you have never heard that word before. But what that means is this. If God cares about the way he's to be worshiped, and I think it's fair to say God does care about that. God cares about how he's worshiped. Then the guidelines for how we are to worship are given to us by God. We don't just make them up. He regulates how he is worshipped. We don't regulate it. So the regulative principle is just a phrase that means that everything we do in worship must be prescribed by the Bible. Prayer, singing, preaching, greeting, confessing sin, administering the sacraments, all of our worship is based on the scripture. It's regulated by God's revelation of himself to us. It's done in truth. Third, practically, worshiping in truth means that content matters. Content matters. Now, that's true of our songs, for example. We want them to be rich. We want them to be beautiful. But we also want them to be accessible to modern people. And it's also a part of the reason why we engage together in things like prayers and creeds. Doing these things together, even out loud, promotes um, the one-anothering of worship. It promotes good biblical content. So these are just a couple of practical implications of what, what it means to worship in truth. And that's a large part of what we're doing here this morning as we are gathered. So the practice of joyful worship is to worship in truth, but it's also to worship in spirit. Jesus tells the woman, that true worshipers, the worshipers God seeks, worship in spirit. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that means exactly. And it all hinges on how you interpret that word spirit. Is that a reference to the Holy Spirit? Or is that a reference to our spirits? That's the key question. And I actually think that the latter is a better interpretation. I think it's probably a reference to our spirits. And you'll notice if you have the ESV translation that spirit is not capitalized, 
which is their way of saying that the best interpretation from the view of these translators is that this is a reference not to the Holy Spirit, but to our spirits. The words spirit and truth, not to get too nitty-gritty here, are both governed by that same preposition, in. And so the best exegesis is to see spirit as referring to, to our own inner lives, to our spirits. So what's Jesus saying? Listen, Jesus is saying this, orthodox worship is not enough. What God wants is people who worship him truly and are fully engaged with him personally. You could say that God is not just after truth. He is also after authenticity. Eugene Peterson in the message translates this verse like this. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. Uh, One of my favorite uh, college football personalities is Mike Leach. He used to be the coach of the Texas Tech Red Raiders, unfortunately. And uh, very unfortunately for Tech, he is now gone. He's now the coach at Washington State. And uh, his first year coaching the Washington State Cougars, they had just gotten destroyed, like 66 to nothing or something like that, by their arch rival, Washington. And in the post-game press conference, Leach, when asked what he thought about his team's performance, said, some of my players are playing with what you might call an empty corpse quality. That was zombie football out there, he said. That's a pretty big hit towards a football player because if you've ever played football or even watched football, you know football is a sport that has to be played from the heart. You can't go through the motions and then expect to perform on a football field. Zombie football players don't work. Just ask Dallas Cowboys fans. Zombie football players don't work. And there's a place where that's even more true, and it's right here. Worship is a place where that's even more relevant. Zombie worshipers don't work. The Bible's full of these kinds of commands from God. God doesn't have any interest in our going through the motions in worship. God wants our lives. He wants our hearts. He wants all of us. In fact, God hates worship that is disengaged. So we need the light of truth and the heat of the Spirit in worship. Joyful worship comes when God has captured in his grace and mercy all of us, our minds and our hearts. We talked a little bit about practically what it means to worship in truth. Now let me just say a couple of things practically about what it means to worship in spirit. First, that's a big reason why we sing. You ever thought about that? It's weird, by the way. Singing is weird. No offense, Laura. We love your voice, but it's weird. I mean, in what cultures, or in what places in our culture do a lot of people now stand up and face the same direction and sing out loud? Very few, if any. Maybe the seventh inning stretch of a baseball game, but really it's only in church. So why do we do that? Well, for one, singing is commanded. It's commanded in many places in the Bible. It's a clear element of our worship. Why would singing be commanded by God, though? Why don't we just recite? Some of you would like that, I bet. Why don't we, sorry, why don't we just chant? Why don't we just meditate? Well, one reason is because singing engages the whole person. Physically, emotionally, mentally. It literally engages our mouths, our stomach muscles, our lungs, our throats. And also, research shows 
that singing and making music help the brain balance emotion through the release of endocrine. Singing helps coordinate the brain's thinking and logic. Singing creates a healthy avenue for imagination and expression. Why do you think that in almost every nursing home in the world, one of the ways that people use therapy is by singing? And that in almost every school or upstairs right now, our children are learning the scripture by learning what? Songs. It's because singing is a way that our whole selves are engaged emotionally, physically, and mentally with God. Singing helps us worship in spirit. By the way, by the way, listen, listen, I love you, but what does it say about you if you don't sing? Well, first of all, you are sinning. The Bible commands you to sing. It commands you to sing repeatedly. What, well, I've never heard this song, Luke. Okay, that's fine. If you've never heard the song, I understand. But if you're not singing because you only like contemporary songs or you only like hymns or I don't really get it, just grow up. You are called to sing. So sing. Well, my voice stinks. There's nowhere in the Bible where that is a qualifier. Well, I just want to listen to the musicians sing. If, if that should, that, someone said that to me a few weeks ago, I, just, I like to just be quiet so that I can listen to the musicians. That's like the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. The whole point of their singing is to lead you in singing. You are in sin, and you need to repent if you aren't singing. So sing. It's one of the ways you worship in spirit, and it's one of the ways you worship in truth. Secondly, you worship in spirit by engaging your full selves. We talked about just that just now with singing, but one way I've said this before is that worship is a contact sport. It's not a spectator sport. That's why we do some of the things we do. For example, that's why we confess sin out loud together. That's why we have you physically come forward to receive communion. It's why we have you stand up. It's why we ask you to say, thanks be to God after the scripture is read. We do all these things because you are a participant in worship. Worship is not about us coming up here, the professionals getting up here and putting on a show so that you can sit back and watch. Worship is about you engaging your mind, your heart, your soul, and your body with Jesus in his resurrection power and grace for you here offered in the gospel. You're a participant. And so we seek to design what we do to prevent us from just going through the motions or just seeing that this is an exercise in remembering the truth without having our hearts set aflame by the beauty of Jesus. So we worship in spirit by singing. We worship in spirit by seeking to engage our full selves. And then last thing, last thing, you might already be mad at me about the singing point. Send me an email. That's fine. Last thing, we want you to have the freedom in worship to express the joy of the gospel outwardly and physically. That's why the scriptures very often tell us to lift our hands or bend our knees or bow our heads. Because acts of the body can be a barometer for the condition of the heart. Now that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Here's why that's dangerous. It's not always like that. You know, some people are still and soft in worship and their hearts are on fire for Jesus. And some people are crazy, clappy, happy, charismatics and they're dead to the Lord on the inside. It's possible for the frozen chosen to be hypocrites, and it's possible for the charismatics to be hypocrites. That's true, okay? But, but, 
I do think that there is scriptural evidence and precedent for the idea that because we're whole cells, body and soul, what's happening in our soul sometimes should have some sort of manifestation in what's going on in our bodies. And can I say to you again, I love you, I love you. Now the other foot's going to drop. I love you, but I think in our church, we err more on the side of having a lot of lights and not a lot of heat. That's okay. That's partly who we are. But I just want to encourage us that Jesus asks for both. So ask yourself, is your heart engaged? Are you drinking from the well that is Jesus? Do you see and savor Jesus as he's offered himself to you in the gospel? If that's true, then to some degree that should be visible by your participation, by your activity in our gatherings, even sometimes by physical expressiveness if you feel so inclined. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. By the way, he was no crazy charismatic. Jonathan Edwards. But listen to what he says in the religious affections. It's up here behind me. For although to true religion there must indeed be something else besides affection, yet true religion consists so much in the affections that there can be no true religion without them. He who has no religious affection is in a state of spiritual death and is wholly destitute of the powerful, quickening, saving influences of the Spirit of God upon his heart. The reason why people are not affected by such infinitely great, important, glorious, and wonderful things is undoubtedly because they are blind. If they were not so, it would be impossible and utterly inconsistent with human nature that their hearts should be otherwise than strongly impressed and greatly moved by the gospel. That's what joyful worship is. Joyful worship is us gathering together as people whose hearts are greatly impressed and deeply moved by the gospel and engaging with Father, Son, and Spirit, in spirit and in truth, finding our deepest satisfaction when Jesus meets with us here, coming to the well that is Jesus in all of his loving fullness for us. That's what we want to be known for. It's one of our values. Us glorifying God by enjoying him forever, us setting aside the broken cisterns that can't hold water and returning to the one who gives us living water abundantly, returning to the one who quenches our thirst. We desire for that to be a part of our aroma, something that we value here, and it flows from the great love of God who has come near to us in Christ. So can we lean in?